but usually I just use my hook to kind of get them out of the toilet first and then uh, bag the snake. I don't really try to mess with the snake with my hands when it's in the toilet. Yeah, I can think of a few reasons. You are listening to Hi, podcast listeners. We've been working on what is turning out to be a series of episodes about urban wildlife rescue, rehabbing, and relocation. We're starting with a two-part post about snake relocation, and this is a topic we've come back to. Um, back in August of 2016, we posted One Man's Pest is Another's Gorgeous Rattlesnake, and that featured an interview and outing with Brian Hughes of Rattlesnake Solutions in Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States. We can talk about how we might share urban spaces with wildlife that uses our cities as their homes too, but that can get more difficult with wildlife that can kill us, such as rattlesnakes, or in these interviews that we're featuring in this two-part episode, um, we're talking about cobras and uh, Russell's vipers and Australian brown snakes. Quick aside, um, in the United States, we have completely unrelated brown snakes that are small and harmless, but in Australia, the same name is used for much larger relatives of cobras um, that can kill you. Um, So if you're in the United States, don't get scared about brown snakes. If you go to Australia, don't go picking up the brown snakes. I'd like to highlight one theme that we'll hit here, that this isn't exactly a question of quote unquote wild animals wandering into human residential areas. These are animals using our residential areas as their residential areas too. And that fact complicates the relocation removal activities you're gonna be hearing um, us talk about with our, our guests. With that, we'll start with part one, which is a combination of two conversations I had with Yatin Kalki, who I know from herping Facebook circles, um, where he posted a fabulous photo of his grandmother handling an eight-foot Indian rat snake, which is a harmless but very impressive snake. I'd like to clarify in advance that the fox snakes that he and I discuss are snakes that he finds in Illinois, not back in, in India. Um, before I shift into that conversation, I'd like to thank Adam Jack, who chipped in via patreon.com to our effort to get some better microphones for that podcast. The effort is ongoing, so you too can contribute at www.patreon.com slash urbanwildlifecast. I'd also like to read a comment by Sandy Brubaker. Um, she emailed to us. She said, glad to have heard about your podcast. Just started listening after Tony's recent bat walk at Cobbs Creek in July. I'm catching up on some past ones, and so far, all are fun and interesting. Thank you, Sandy. You too can drop us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com, and you can hit us up on Twitter at urbanwildlifecast, and you can find us on our Facebook page and get in touch there. How did it happen that your grandmother was handling a... What looked like a, what, I don't know, six or seven foot rat snake? Yeah, that one was actually eight foot. Um, well, my grandma's been a pretty big supporter of my, uh, I don't know, love for wildlife and stuff. And recently she's taken more of an interest in snakes. Um, she wasn't always like this. She used to be really, really scared of them. But uh, that day she was just outside in the backyard and I was showing her the snake and everything. And I was like, how would you like to hold this? And I'll take a photo and make you internet famous. And uh, she was like, yeah, okay. So she did, and it was it was fun. So my name is uh, Yatin Kalki, and um, I'm a volunteer wildlife rescuer for the BBMP. Um, it's the governmental organization of uh, Bangalore. It's kind of like the animal rescue that you have in uh, the U.S. Or say animal uh, control that you have in the U.S. Sure. And so, and, and currently you're a, also a student in, uh, in Illinois. 
That's correct. Yeah, I'm getting my bachelor's degree in uh, wildlife conservation at the University of Illinois. Lovely. Looking on your your Facebook profile, you catch a lot of a snake I'm jealous of. I love fox snakes. Um, oh yeah. And we don't have them out here. But I can just you're in these pictures holding these fox snakes and bull snakes, and I can picture you some part of your head being like, "Yeah, it's nice, but this isn't a cobra." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to some extent. Um, I don't know. I I tend to like these uh, snakes here just because cobras um, are super common. I mean, I was um, super interested in them and super fascinated by them in the beginning, but now they're kind of boring. They're like your garter snakes. How did you become a volunteer snake rescuer in Bangalore? So I grew up in the city, and uh, when I was younger, I used to see snakes entering my, um, like, snakes were all over my neighborhood, and my neighbors used to kill them a lot of the time, and that used to make me really angry. So um, around the age of 17, I decided that I would uh, learn how to catch snakes, and I did a bunch of research and stuff, and uh, bought the right tools for it, and started catching snakes around my house. And I started off with the non-venomous ones, and uh, my parents were kind of okay with that. But once I tried to catch the venomous ones, they weren't super happy, so I did a lot more training, a lot more research. And then finally, they became okay with it somehow. And um, yeah, I just went from there. I've been doing it for the last almost five years. For people who, who aren't familiar with your hometown, talk about it a little bit. What kind of city is it? So um, Bangalore is the third most populous city in India. It's also called the Silicon Valley of India. It's a highly urban uh, environment. And you wouldn't normally think that it would be a great place for snakes, but uh, there's a handful of species that just seem to do really well in the city. There are little patches of uh, tropical dry deciduous forest in the city, but the majority of it is concrete jungle. And somehow the snakes persist in that as well, living in the sewers and just living everywhere. So what are the common ones that you tend to see? Of all the snake uh, rescue data that I've collected over the last couple of years, 41% of all the snakes have been cobras. 21% are the Indian rat snake, which is a non-venomous uh, large uh, colubrid. And 19% are Russell's vipers. And then the rest of the snakes are non-venomous um, and much more infrequently encountered. The part that struck me is that you have a large proportion that are venomous. And then mm -hmm. what I was wondering is, is that because people know that they're venomous and thus call an expert, or is it because that's representative of what you actually just tend to find in people's backyards there? Um, you know what? I think it could be um, a little bit of both, but from my personal experience, just, I don't know, walking through some of the more natural areas in the city and uh, herping on my own time, I do see a lot more of the uh, venomous snakes and they're just, I don't know, they, I, they're likely more numerous than non-venomous ones. But uh, as far as uh, a bias with uh, people calling for uh, venomous snakes over non-venomous snakes, I think that also exists, especially with cobras, because um, a lot of times people will call me for a cobra and then they'll say, oh yeah, I only called you because uh, this is a cobra and we consider them sacred. If it was any other snake, we would have killed it. So um, that, that definitely plays a factor. The dimension I hadn't even considered. Okay. There's no such regard for the Russell's vipers? Nope. Most people, um, well, most people can't really identify them. Sometimes people think they're pythons and stuff, but uh, I've seen a lot of Russell's vipers get killed, like, before I even get there. Like, I'll show up uh, when they say, oh, yeah, there's a snake that's right outside my house, and this is usually at night because Russell's viper is nocturnal. And then by the time I show up that spot, they've already beat it to death or something. That happens quite often.
So just again, I realize that I'm jumping ahead and assuming knowledge that people might not have. Um, could you describe a Russell's Viper? What does it look like, and what is it? So a Russell's Viper is um, a uh, true Viper, and uh, it's pretty stocky, but stocky-bodied snake, and it's got these uh, circles that run down its back. It's very, very distinctive, and it's a really beautiful snake. Its temperament is pretty, uh, I wouldn't classify it as aggressive, more so defensive. Um, they're slow-moving snakes, so when people uh, walk up on them, they can't really get out of the way super fast. So what they tend to do is they'll coil up with their head at the center of um, like a spiral-shaped coil, and they'll hiss super loud, um, inflating their body to like three times you know, its size. And it sounds like a really, really loud pressure cooker. You, you can hear them from like really, really far away. The largest one I've seen was about five and a half foot. I haven't really heard of them getting over six foot or seven foot or anything like that. I've heard of seven foot cobras though. But the majority of the Russell's Vipers that I do find are around one to two foot long. And which species of cobras are we talking about? I'm sorry. The spectacle cobra. That's the only one found in Bangladesh. Okay. So then spectacle cobras and, and Russell's Vipers... If I recall correctly, they're pretty high up on the list of snakes that tend to kill the most people, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I think they're both uh, within the top 10. I'm, I'm sort of trying to suppress my kind of like geeking out on how cool these snakes are. <laughs> um, but the, they're just impressive snakes. The Russell's Vipers, I mean, as someone who in the northeast of the United States, the only impressive vipers we have really are timber rattlesnakes. And yep. I think of a Russell's Viper yep. as kind of like comparable to a timber rattlesnake in size, shape, demeanor, that kind of stuff. Um, um, yeah, I think they're about the same. Yeah, I would say they're very similar in terms of size and uh, definitely demeanor. Thinking about that showing up in my backyard. What do you know about actual mortality or, or bites in Bangalore? Are these snakes that people do tend to get bitten by a lot in the city or is that more of a rural phenomenon? I think the snake bite epidemic in India is uh, more rural in nature. I, I've heard uh, a figure of about like 46,000 people getting killed by snakes every year in India, which is astonishing. But um, in the cities, we don't get that many bites um, just because we're not out walking around in the fields barefoot. And uh, I think the snakes that we have in the cities aren't as active around the times that people are most active. In Bangalore, I have heard of a few bites, but most of them have been of uh, other snake catchers and snake uh, people or people trying to kill the snake or anything like that. Not many accidental bites, really. So when you show up and someone has called and, and you're the guy on the scene to catch the cobra or Russell's viper, how do you actually catch it? Okay, um, so I have a snake hook and a pillowcase, which is what I started off with. I used to have um, a bamboo stick with a coat hanger attached to it. I've since <laughs> upgraded from that. Um, <laughs> and I have a bagger now, which is uh, kind of like a pole with um, a hoop at the end, and then there's a long bag that's attached to it. So uh, there's like a little hole for the snake to go into. And what I typically do is, um, in the beginning, I was, wasn't super experienced, so I used to pin snakes behind the head and pick them up by their neck. And um, I did some research about that, and that wasn't really the best practice to follow. So um, now I barely even touch, um, I rarely touch the snakes with my hands. Um, only if the situation really, really calls for it do I tail the snakes um, and use the hook. Otherwise, I just use the hook straight up to kind of guide the snake into the bag. Or I set the bag up in such a way that I can uh, go over and uh, uh, somehow maneuver the snake into the bag on its own um, 
using just the hook. That's pretty much how it's done. Part two, now that you've got a, a, a venomous, quite dangerous snake in a bag, what do you do with it mm-hmm. next? It would be ideal to release them in the same area because that's where they grew up. That's the environment that they know. But the homeowners and the people who call you for the snake aren't super happy with that idea. So um, what I end up having to do is uh, I look on Google Maps and I find the nearest little patch of uh, native habitat or like natural habitat. And usually that's uh, some kind of uh, small patch of forest that's adjacent to a lake or maybe an empty lot or something like that. And uh, I usually just go over there and let it go. I mean, do you have a car? Do you drive them or do you take other, like, do you hop in a taxi with the Russell's Viper? Like, how does that part work? <laughs> that has happened in the past. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have a car in India, which I use for uh, rescues that are more far away. But um, if I can, uh, I mean, most of the rescues that I get, or most of the calls that I get are within uh, walking distance of my house. So I might just take my uh, bicycle or just walk there. How do you carry them on the bicycle? I have a backpack, and uh, <laughs> it's probably not the best practice. Um, well, because like usually... a Russell's Viper, I mean, a decent-sized Russell's yeah, Viper is going to have fangs that could get through your backpack is a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I usually, if I am carrying a venomous snake in my backpack, I tend to put it in the, um, the I don't know, the little compartment that's like one compartment away from my back. So the one that's like <laughs> the most one. Yeah, that's, that's happened before I... <laughs> I wish, yeah, I wish I had better uh, ways to carry them around, but that's that's happened. I got to tell you, man, I, I love to ride my bike. I commute by bicycle. I live in Philadelphia, which is a very bikeable city. Maybe it would be a good investment to invest in a, a rack and yeah. a bag you can mount sure. on the rack. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great idea. Um, the reason I don't take my car for um, most rescues, especially the ones that are closer by, is because uh, when you get a rescue call, time is of the essence. So, like, there's been a whole bunch of times where um, I'm late or, I, I don't know, I got stuck in traffic or something like that, and either the snake ended up escaping, which I'm fine with, I'm happy with that, but the worst uh, situation is where they ended up killing the snake because they couldn't wait long enough for me to show up. Yeah. So if it's one that's close by, and uh, in Bangalore the traffic is really, really bad, so I'm better off just jumping on my bike rather than going in my car. So I want to shift a little bit to the thing that I think most immediately spurred me to to get in touch with you is that you would put a call on Facebook um, out, I think, to other guys and or other guys, women, I don't know, um, herpers in Bangalore because you're pulling together a um, kind of like a species list for the city. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so right now there's no comprehensive checklist or anything of um, the snakes found in Bangalore. So whenever I go and do any educational I don't know, presentation or anything, I have to use my own data, which isn't really representative of what was found in the whole city because uh, snake catchers that are in South Bangalore or West Bangalore find, are finding like completely different set of species than what I'm finding in East Bangalore. And um, I just wanted to see what kind of uh, variation there would be regarding that. And uh, also I'm working on um, a publication right now about uh, using my snake rescue data from the last uh, three years. And one uh, aspect of that is comparing um, my subset of species with what is found in the city. And for that, I actually need to have an inventory which is not present at the moment. I'm going to let myself geek out for a second and drill down mm-hmm. on a few species that you had listed. So I noticed you had two species of, si- of, of sand boas in the city. Yep. 
what kind of mm-hmm. where do you find a sand boa in a in a in a big city like this? Well, I'm not the best person to answer that question because I haven't seen a sand boa in the city <laughs> yet. The uh, village right next to my house, um, I've actually heard of uh, a sand boa being seen there w- one day when it was like super rainy or something. And the red sand boa, which is um, Eric's Jonii, um, it's also considered, um, I don't know, sacred, auspicious, lucky, I'm not really sure. It's some kind of superstition involved with that. But whenever uh, the local people do see the snake, they keep it um, in their house, hoping that they're going to get like a lot of money or luck or something like that. It's supposed to be auspicious. So this is one of the reasons that this snake is not doing too well in the wild, because uh, they be they're like collected for this stupid reason a lot of the time. And uh, I did hear about that snake being found in the village next to my house, and then there was uh, I heard a tip off about it being present in some shopkeeper's house or something like that. And then I tried to I don't know probe into that a little bit, and then people came up and warned me saying, "Don't mess with that. You know, you, you're gonna dig up some stuff you don't want to get into." And yeah, I just kind of left that alone after that, but. Um, I've noticed that also on Facebook you've posted about your parents going out on calls now that you're not there. Um, and so I know that when you're the kid in the neighborhood who's into snakes, you get sick of people asking you, well, what does your mom think of it? Um, but the part that I'm curious about is that we've gone way past what does your mom think of it. So talk a little bit about your parents' involvement now in the, the rescue business. Well, um, so my parents have always been supportive, um, really supportive of my, uh, I don't know, wildlife interests and stuff like that. We've always had, um, I don't know, other animals, not snakes in the house, so uh, orphaned birds and, uh, I don't know, squirrels, things like that, that we would rehabilitate and do stuff with. Um, And then when I got into snakes, they weren't super happy, but uh, they kind of, I don't know, had to go with it, (laughs) no other choice really. And... um, now um, that I'm back here in the U.S., uh, my house still gets a bunch of calls from my neighbors um, whenever they have a snake problem. And my parents have no choice but to attend the, the snake calls because they're like, okay, fine, if, if we don't do anything now and then they end up killing the snake, then Yatin is going to be really, really pissed off at us. So, um, yeah, that's what, I don't know, they have no other choice, so now they just do that. Actually, my dad just uh, sent me a text yesterday saying that he caught a trinket snake. And uh, my, yeah, my mom wasn't uh, too happy about it, um, that uh, he's, I don't know, going out and catching snakes, but she's the one who brought him the bag to catch the snake when, uh, when he was out there. So <laughs> That's a great story, man. Um, and uh, describe a trinket snake for people who've never heard of one before. So trinket snakes are uh, kind of similar to your um, radiated rat snake, which is pretty common in uh, the pet trade. It's um, it's a rat snake. It's got like uh, you know, kind of thick body. It's it's a constrictor, and um, they're actually really really docile snakes. They have a really really cool pattern on their back. Um, they've got these two lines that run from their head to their tail, and then they've also got bars that uh, can either be um, just black or uh, black and white. Um, yeah, it's a really cool snake. It eats rodents, birds, things like that. Yeah, so uh, one of the coolest thing about coolest things about them is um, their defensive behavior. So if you uh, walk up on a trinket snake and uh, you try to catch it or anything like that, it will um, raise the uh, front half of its body up in like an S-shaped coil, and it'll open its mouth and uh, try to scare you off. That's like one of its uh, I don't know defensive behaviors, and. Um, what's really cool is about it is that 
um, they'll also wag their tail while they do that. And I have a video of this up um, somewhere, but yeah, it's pretty cool. You mean like a vibrating thing or like a slower wagging? No, a slower wagging where they'll just kind of drag their tail um, across the floor, like in front of them. Not like, uh, I don't know, like a racer or a fox snake would do where it's just vibrating the tip of its tail. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people think that by removing the snakes from an urban area and releasing it, uh, sometimes far, far away in a more quote-unquote natural environment, they're doing uh, the snake a favor and the snake's going to live a really good life in the new habitat. But uh, I don't know if that's um, always true. And there's not really a lot of data to back up uh, either stance about whether it works or whether it doesn't work. There's just not enough known about it. So I, I was going to say, though, that, that I've, I mean, what I've heard on both sides of this, on the one hand, you know, you've got plenty of studies of, relo- of like, intentional relocation of populations to try to, let's say, repopulate um, some habitat where a particular species has been uh, wiped out from. And um, from the sound of it, it's really hard to do. Like, it's hard to get um, a whole bunch of like if you let's say you transplant a bunch of adult pine, like take an American North American example, let's say you try to transplant a whole bunch of pine snakes to um, the new habitat, they you know they they don't they have a hard time. I don't know the way word is finding what they need in terms of resources. Um, they sometimes try to wander back to where they're from. Um, that sort of the general idea that we underestimate the I guess what the right word is the an animal sense of a place and sort of like their their knowledge of their their specific territory and that when you break that then they have a hard time eating and everything else. But then on the flip side, um, if translocation or transplantation never worked, then we would have like there would be no brown tree snakes in Guam, you know, <laughs> or there would. Or, yeah. or there would be no red-eared sliders anywhere outside of the Mississippi drainage, right? So, like, mm-hmm. evidently it works sometimes, um, but you don't. But the, but I guess there is there. I guess what you're saying is there's just not much on the specifics of. The um, so from what I've uh, looked into it and seen, like just about snakes uh, in India, there have been like uh, I think a handful of studies, like under ten on uh whether the that actually tracked like the survival of snakes after relocation and they found that it wasn't uh too high and most of the time the snakes actually tried to come back to where they were caught or they just kind of yeah. sporadically went around the landscape uh not really settling down in any area for uh too long a period and um i mean from my personal experience um i've seen a bit of both where uh I've released a snake uh, somewhere really far away, and then uh, I find the same snake back in uh, a similar area to where I caught it. And this is maybe after like six or seven months. And I've also seen uh, snakes that I release in um, another area that's pretty far away. And by far away, I'm talking like within five kilometers, so not like super, super far far away. But But um, five kilometers is really far for a snake. (laughs) Yeah, that is. I don't know, so like the King Cobra study that uh, took place in the Western Ghats, they tracked snakes that were moving like 40, 50 kilometers. So, I mean, okay, compared so to that, that that's, is, an eight, that, that's like a 15-foot 
act of the snake. I mean, like, yeah, the, yeah, the, that's true. The part that that amazes me about a five kilometer um, movement of a snake in a in a in a relatively urban landscape is it's got to cross a lot of roads. Yeah, that's right. So um, I've seen uh, two, two snakes that I've released uh, in. I don't know, natural habitat, kind of close to where they were caught, like within a one kilometer uh, radius that I found um, like dead on roads trying to come back to where they were like heading in the direction uh, um, where they were caught. So I'm not sure what that says. It's not conclusive in any sense, but it's it's just an observation. Have you ever tried marking them? Like with like I, I do, I've done this sometimes in, in stuff around Philadelphia mm-hmm. with small snakes, like brown snakes, but using like a you know, surgical cauterizer or something to, to... Yeah, so um, I actually scale clip all of my non-venomous snakes. Um, so oh, I, there you go. So I developed a marking scheme for rat snakes, scalebacks, uh, wolf snakes, cookery snakes, all of those guys. And uh, my venomous snakes, since I don't really have uh, tubes and those things, I don't really want to take the risk of that. I take photos of the cobra's hoods, and uh, those, are, those can be really, really variable. So I have noticed... Um, you know, when I find the same snake again, I'll go back and look at my photos and try to match it up with uh, other hood patterns that I've uh, seen on snakes. And then with the Russell's Vipers, it's a little bit harder, but sometimes you can pick up on small, um, I don't know, things in the pattern of the snake, about the chain links where it's like broken or where two of the uh, rings are fused or things like that. And make notes of small things to see uh, if, I don't know, tell individuals apart. And by doing that, I found that uh, one big cobra that... Uh, was injured at a construction site. I couldn't release it in the same construction site because that whole area was going to be developed and it had already been hit a bunch of times by the construction workers. So I took it um, about, I think it was four four kilometers away and I released it in a patch of uh, scrub forest after, you know, treating his wounds and everything. So this was about two weeks after I'd caught it. And um, at, the, at that point, it stayed within that patch for seven months because I caught it seven months later uh, in another... Uh, person's house that was right at the border of that patch of habitat. Not bad. Of course. <laughs> Did you tell the people that you had released it right near there? I could totally see. No, no. I leave, <laughs> <laughs> I leave those details out. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, so er, snake rescue in Bangalore. Uh, kind of. Can I set the stage about like how exactly it is? Not just from my personal thing, but like. Uh, I don't know, on a broader scale within the city. Okay. Yeah, so um, each little, like, uh, locality, village, um, area that I would say is a, about uh, maybe uh, three or four square kilometers is uh, controlled by or has one or two snake rescuers, and that goes on, like, throughout the whole city. So there's a ton of snake rescuers in the city. Huh. And um, are actually logging any of their data, or you know, taking notes on what they're finding, or sometimes they don't—they don't even know what kind of species they're catching. They just catch the snakes and they put them in a bag and release them somewhere else. They don't even know what they're catching. Um, and I've looked at other studies and stuff. That uh, one of the studies said that among all the vertebrates uh, in urban areas, there have been the least number of uh, papers published about herps. So mammals, fish, um, birds, huh. they're way, way more um, represented in terms of ecological studies and population studies and everything in urban areas, and herps just aren't surveyed, you know, as much. 
And there's other papers that say within reptiles, um, snakes are the hardest to get, get info on. Uh, and I think that since these people are encounter, encountering snakes so often, because um, I'm sure if you looked at every single snake catcher in the city of Bangalore, you'd probably get um, upwards of 100 records per day. And uh, that data is, hasn't, I mean, it's not being recorded right now. Very few snake rescuers are actually recording what they're finding. So if somebody was actually able to harness that data and, you know, look at it on a broader scale, they'd be able to see really cool patterns about, like, seasonal variations in species and maybe, um, you know, regional variations in species and several other natural history-related things, too, that we couldn't even, even imagine at this point. Let me tell you about the first ever cobra that I caught. Um, I was uh, 16 and it was, I got a call from my neighbor who lives about three doors down and they said there's a snake in their bathroom. And I thought it had been, it was a rat snake or a keelback because that's what I usually had caught at that time. So I walk in and I see this uh, about four and a half foot cobra coiled around the faucet of uh, where they would wash their hands in their bathroom. And apparently the, uh, the owner of the house, the guy, he had uh, gone to the bathroom in the morning, and then after he was done, he was trying to wash his hands, and he heard hissing. And lucky for him, he turned on the light before he put his hand on the snake to turn on the uh, the faucet. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was – that could have ended very, very badly for him, but um, he was lucky, and, you know, he saw the snake before. And, uh, yeah, I came in and bagged the snake. That was, that was kind of – I would hate to be in that situation where – wake up and see a snake in my bathroom the first thing in the morning, especially a cobra. I, I, I don't know, man. I, I kind of wish that happened to me more often. And then uh, I've also caught uh, at least three cobras that I've pulled out from inside toilets, and that is, I don't know, a lot more scary to me. Well, how do you... That they so could which at any point grab it? Yeah, so you... Usually, uh, the snake, I don't know how they get into the toilets from like, it's probably through like the sewer line or something like that, but, um, usually the snake is either up inside the rim that's around the, uh, bowl, or they, you know, the tail and the, you know, bottom half of the body is down in, you know, down the bowl, and the head's poking out of the toilet. So usually I just use my hook to kind of get them out of the toilet first, and then, uh, bag the snake. I don't really try to mess with the snake with my hands when it's in the toilet. Yeah, I can think of a few reasons. Thanks for listening to the first part of our two-part episode on snake relocation and rescue. Please listen to part two after this.